Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Please take out your Bibles and turn in them to Hebrews chapter 10. You will need them in front of you this morning. You need them in front of you every time we preach, um, but I hope especially you need them today. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 24 and 25. Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25. Uh, This is going to be our final sermon in a quarantine-interrupted mini-series on church membership. Uh, Next week, back to Genesis 16. But why did we decide to pause Genesis to talk about church membership? Well, it's because I'm convinced, I think I can speak for both of us here, we are convinced that many of you are not convinced that church membership is that big of a deal. I'm convinced that many of you are not convinced that membership matters, or maybe that it's even biblical. So I'm trying to convince you that it is, that it's biblical, that it means if it's biblical, it is then beneficial. If it's biblical, that means it's mandatory. Christ expects Christians to be members of local churches, right? That's, that's my claim. Uh, scripture has no concept of Christians that are not connected, and we're using the language of covenant. Scripture has no concept of Christians that are not covenanted together with a local church. And that's what membership is. I attempted to make a case for church membership about two months ago from Jesus' command in John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Don't miss how wonderful that is, by the way. Christ's commandment. Here's the rule. Here's the law. What is it? Love. Don't do what many in many churches today do and divorce love and law. Scripture doesn't do that. They go together. The law is all about love. Everything we're talking about today is all about love. And Christ's command to Christians is that they love each other. But then he tags on that very important qualifier. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. I'm building my case for church membership on that as. We are to love Christians as Christ has loved us. And how has he loved us? Through the covenant. Luke 22.20, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Christ is not just dying. In dying, he is cutting. He is creating the new covenant. He is entering into covenant relationship with his people. And in covenanting with his people, he is committing to his people. I am yours and you are mine. God binds himself to his people. He covenants and to covenant is to commit. Therefore, my argument that is if we are to love one another as Christ has loved us, then we too must covenant with one another and in so doing commit to one another. That's what church membership is. It is a binding relationship of both love and law when Christian and church are bound together for the mutual edification of each. I am yours. You are mine. So if you are to love as Christ has loved you, then you must commit to other Christians in the covenant of church membership as Christ has committed to you in the new covenant. You cannot properly fulfill the command to love as Christ loves without being a member of a local church. That argument probably annoys some of you. I can't hear you, so maybe you're speaking back to the screen as I do to a basketball game. That's fine. Argue back. Show me where I'm wrong. Every Christian needs to be a member of a local 
church. That's my summary argument. Now, what does that really look like? Maybe you're sold on the argument. Christ-like love requires the covenant commitment of church membership. Okay, well now what does that look like in real life? How does that love go on then to demonstrate itself? Well, that's where Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 come in. These two verses are going to put some meat on these bones. These two verses are going to show us practically how our commitment to one another is played out. What does it look like to love one another as fellow church memberships? Again, always keeping in mind that I'm going to keep arguing that the things that Christians are commanded to do in these verses are ultimately only possible in the context of local church membership. So look, look at the verses. I want to draw your attention there to four verbs. Verbs convey action. We are being told to do something, to act. So let us, let the verbs guide us. There are four main ones we're going to look at. Consider, stir up. The third verb is actually not neglecting, where you see to meet together there. It's actually just the noun, the assembling or the, or the gathering, not neglecting the gathering or the assembling. So we'll just call that one gathering. And then finally, we'll see encouraging. But it's that first verb that is the controlling verb. The main idea, Christians consider other Christians. Simple as possible. Christians consider other Christians. Okay, well, for what purpose? To stir them up to love and good works. And for the sake of time, because I ran out of it yesterday, we're going to combine that with the last verb, encourage. We're going to put all that Together. Here's kind of the main idea. Here's what you are commanded to do. Christians carefully consider how to do intentional spiritual good to other Christians. Kind of that's the main idea. How do you do that? He tells us. And there are many ways, of course, but I want to focus on his focus. I want you to see how he says, do this thing, and then note the very next thing that he says. He connects this command to stir one another up directly with the command to gather. How do Christians serve and encourage one another? Well, it's in large part by point number two. Christians consistently gather with other Christians. Nice and simple. Just two points. Christians seek to stir up and encourage other Christians. And Christians do that by consistently gathering with other Christians. Those are very wordy. I know. I couldn't do any better. Um, But I'm going to argue that you need church membership to do both of the things that you are commanded to do there. And I'm going to unpack specifically, hopefully in more detail and even practically some, what that will look like. All I'm trying to do here is to convince you that church membership is an expression of love and then show you from the text how that love plays itself out in the Christian life. Let's read the text again. You know, let's go back all the way to verse 19. Let's get kind of that indicative. Let's get the gospel in there, the motivation that will lead us in to the imperatives in verse 24 and 25. So I'll read for you Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19, all the way to verse 25. Pay attention because this is what God wants to say to you this morning. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed 
with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. If you would bow with me, and let's begin first with with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this time. Father, this is not how we would have designed this time, but we know that it is how you have designed um, this time. So help us to trust you. Help us to be thankful um, for the time that we get together, even uh, through this virtual medium. Father, it is strange and difficult uh, to preach to a camera, so I pray that you would especially help the preaching of the word. Father, it's strange and difficult to listen uh, to a screen. Um, So I pray for my brothers and sisters at home uh, that you would help them to be attentive uh, to your word. Father, your spirit is not quarantined. Uh, You are not uh, limited um, by our uh, physical constraints. And so I pray that you would take this word that is living and active, and I pray that you would apply it to your people's hearts. Uh, I pray that you would edify and encourage us. Father, I pray that you would challenge and and rebuke some of us. Um, Father, I pray that you would show us the great beauty of Christians covenanted together in church membership, and that you would give us a great love and longing for the gathering of the saints, and a great desire to be a part of that, and a great desire to love one another as you have so wonderfully loved us in Christ. Father, help us, please, we pray, and in Jesus' name, amen. All right, Christians, carefully consider how to do intentional spiritual good to Christians. That's a mouthful, I know. I never complained, or I never claimed to succeed at succinctness, but I want to unpack what I mean by all those Words. All I really mean is love. Christians love one another. But that term has become so emptied of meaning today that we have to go to great lengths to explain what Scripture actually means by love. And we've been trying to situate this whole church membership series in terms of love. We covenant together with other Christians as an expression of love in fulfillment of the command to love one another as Christ loves us. Pastor Mike explained how church discipline is a profound display of Christian love. And then last week we stepped back to look at and consider the love of God as our motive and as our fuel to pursue this type of love. And so last week we spent a whole sermon largely on verses 19 through 21 because I'm trying to convince you that the love for one another that you are called and commanded to here is impossible without first being captured and consumed by God's love for you. We love because he first loved us. You will love others to the degree that you understand God's love for you. Do you understand? Do you appreciate? Do you delight in God's love for you? I don't think we appreciate how differently Paul prays than us. Uh, Ephesians 3, 14 through 19 is one of the best examples of this. Uh, Paul prays there. I love, just go study Paul's prayers. Uh, Paul prays in verse 16 of Ephesians 3 that you would be strengthened with power through the Spirit, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That sounds really good. What's it for? Grand, spiritual, miraculous. What's he want all this stuff for us? Um, why? He says that being rooted and grounded in love... Okay, what? What does he pray for them? Verse 18, that you may have strength. I love that. This thing is something so big and so grand that you need the strength and spirit of God to grasp it. He says that you may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints. 
Don't miss that either. This is something so big and so grand that you cannot comprehend it on your own. You need others' help to do this. Well, what is it that you may comprehend? What is the breadth and length and height and depth? And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. See, Paul's prayer there for believers is that they would have the strength together to comprehend God's love for them. It's because his love is so big and limitless, a love without breadth and length and height or depth, a love that surpasses knowledge. He has to pray for the Spirit to help us to understand and appreciate that. This is how much God loves you. And apparently this is something that Christians struggle to comprehend and apprehend. And so Paul prays for us. We need help understanding God's love for us. We're prone to wonder, does God really love us? We're prone to think of him as angry and capricious. We, we know ourselves, we know our own weakfulness and sinfulness, and we're sure that God must think of us like we think of us. Now, not so highly. Not generally disappointed, frustrated, and, and fed up with us. How do you think about how God thinks about you? Paul prays that you would comprehend God's great love for you. Is that something you ever pray for other people? And that you ever pray for yourself, that we could know God's great love. And that great love was summarized beautifully for us in Hebrews 10, 19 through 21. These verses that beautifully summarize the gospel. And so last week, we looked at the free and full access to God that Christ provides for us. Our sins separated us from God. Access was denied. We did not get to be in the presence of God. We do not get to be with and near the one we were created for, created to know, the one who is life and love himself. We separated ourselves from him with our sin. And that is why Christ comes. That is the problem Christ solves. And we saw that he solves that by his blood. We saw that he opens up the way. He grants access to the presence of God through his substitutionary death in our place. That's the clearest demonstration of God's love for you. Don't look at your circumstances. Don't judge God's love for you based upon your current circumstances. Judge God's love for you based upon Christ on the cross. It's the, it's the while we were yet sinners part that makes the Christ died for us part so amazing. And he didn't love us because we were lovable. He didn't love us because we were beautiful. He loved us to make us lovely and beautiful when we were not. He loved us when we were denied access to God to sprinkle our hearts clean, to wash us with pure water so that we could be granted access to God. That's love. This is a sin-bearing, death-dying, life-defeating, relationship-restoring, access-granting love. And it is a love that at great cost to itself sought the good of the loved. That's how much God loves you. That's what he has done for you. And so we saw the call, the first command then in verse 22, because of all of that in 19 through 21, therefore now you draw near to him. The God that told Israel in Exodus 19, do not draw near, now in Christ calls us, invites us to draw near. Why? Well, we didn't get to look long at verse 21. I want to spend some time here. Look at verse 21 for a second. He says, since 
we have a great high priest over the house of God. I mentioned this in the email Thursday. The 3% of you who read my emails uh, saw this. Um, I want you to keep this in mind. Remember the connection between this verse and Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6. If you want to flip back a couple pages and look at that. We see that Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Same language, but there it keeps going. Uh, or it keeps going, it says and in, in Hebrews 3, 6, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in hope. See that, what he's doing there. House, a place connected to we, a people. In this book that is all about Christ's superiority over all the Old Testament forms and shadows, much of which revolved around the temple or tabernacle, the house of God, well, now we're being told that we are the house of God. A people is now the place where God's presence dwells. And that connection is made explicit in 1 Timothy 3.15, where Paul tells Timothy that he is writing him this letter, that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church. The church is the household of God. And that's why I want to continue to encourage you to start thinking of church more and more in family terms. The church is a house. Uh, The church is a family. These responsibilities that we are about to look at are family responsibilities. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are family. And the great privilege of family also carries with it the great responsibility of family. That's what these commands are. These are the responsibilities that are necessarily part of being part of God's family. You cannot be part of the family and not participate in the family. More on that in a second. So keep in mind for a moment your identity as family, but there's something else important in these verses that I wanted to get to last week, but we ran out of time like usual. Something that I think, will, I hope, will put a bit of a different spin on this whole church membership conversation. Okay, work with me here. I'm doing everything I can to convince you that all of this matters, that this is mandatory, that membership is mandatory. Let's try this. Back to verses 19 through 21 for a moment. What's the working metaphor in those Verses. What are the terms in which our author is teaching us? I mean, he's using temple terminology, right? The temple is the house of God, was the house of God. The church, the people of God, are now the house of God. But remember, who is it that serves in the temple? Look at 21 again. We're able to enter in and draw near since we have a great Priest or a great high priest, as Hebrews 2.17 says. And that's Jesus, of course. And remember what a priest is and does. Regular people didn't get to go into the temple. You didn't get to go into the place of God's presence. Only the priests. It was the priests who were privileged with the presence of God. And thus, it was the role of the priests to mediate the presence of God to the people. They were the only ones who got to enter into the holy places. They were the only ones who got to draw near. Are you following me? So when verse 19 says, we have confidence to enter into the holy places, when verse 22 says that we can 
draw near, what is our author saying? He's saying that we are priests. And we see this clearly in 1 Peter. Flip there for a moment if you would like. It's two books. It's just a couple of pages over to your right. Flip to your right a couple of pages. 1 Peter chapter 2. Look at verse 4. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 4. Again, pay attention to the language. Again, stones, buildings, temples. Verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. Again, there's priestly language there again. Only priests can come to the temple, to God himself. Look at verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Look at that. There we kind of have family language and priestly language coming together. You are being built into a spiritual house. You are a priesthood. What do priests do? It tells us they offer sacrifices. And it sounds like what we just read in Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Again, only priests get to present sacrifices. Paul says, you, church, or uh, yeah, Romans 12, Paul, you, church, priests, offer yourself as a living sacrifice. That is how you worship God. And so then circling back to 1 Peter chapter 2, look at verse 9. Now of 1 Peter chapter 2, he lays it all out there. Look at the identity here. Who are you? Look at what Peter says. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We saw this a few weeks ago in Revelation 1-6 as well. It's in a couple other spots. Revelation 1-6 says Jesus has loved us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. Brothers and sisters, you are priests of the Most High God. Do you ever think of yourself in those terms? Do you ever consider yourself as a priest of God? Again, what a privilege this is, if this is true. Remember, it's the priests that have the access. Priests are privileged with presence. That's what we all have now because of our great high priest, Jesus Christ. Living where we are in the neighborhood that we're in, I'll sometimes meet people and not knowing a ton about the differences in our theology and the theology next door, people will call me priest or they'll say, nope, don't call me that. Um, let's, let's talk about what that means and what we believe differently about what it means to be a priest. Everyone in Christ is a priest. Everyone who knows Jesus is called in the New Testament a priest. Now, Maybe we're ready. Now, maybe we're ready to hear and consider verse 24 in a different light. Church, you are a family, and you are a family of priests. Listen to this verse again in light of all of that. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. What does family do? Fight and all kinds of things, sure. What does a well-functioning family do? A well-functioning family loves 
and works together for the good of the family. Everyone has a part to play. Everyone has some sort of responsibility for the well-being of the whole family. We had family cleanup last night before bed, right? So it doesn't all fall to me and to Melissa. Um, So we all together cleaned up. We said, all right, five minutes, everybody cleaned. Here's a family playing a role, serving the good of the family. Everyone has some sort of responsibility for the well-being of the whole family. Family members seek the good of other family members. What do priests do? Priests, by definition, serve others. That's what priests exist to do. That is the function of a priest. They mediate God's presence to others. They go before the Lord on behalf of others. Listen to Hebrews 5.1, a couple of pages to your left. This is specifically about the high priest, but it applies to priests in general as well. Hebrews 5.1 says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. That's what a priest does. A priest acts on behalf of men in relation to God. How? In what way? He keeps going. He says to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Again, take that back to Romans 12, 1. Now, we know we're not offering sacrifices for sins. Hebrews is very clear on that. Jesus took care of this when he offered himself up once for all by a single sacrifice for sin, the sacrifice of himself. But just because there are no more sacrifices for sin doesn't mean that there are no more sacrifices. Romans 12, 1. We present our bodies as a living sacrifice, which is our spiritual worship. What does that mean exactly? Well, keep reading the chapter. Let's go back there. Flip to your left. We read Romans 12 for a reason. Go back to Romans 12. We're going to be here for a minute. I think you'll be helped if you have it open in front of you. I think, we think of Romans 12.1 in almost entirely individual terms. Right? We worship our bodies by offering them to him. And he doesn't just literally mean our physical bodies. He's talking about ourselves in light of Christ's offering of his whole self for us, we respond in gratitude by willingly and joyfully offering our whole selves to God. I think many of us probably tend to think of that in terms of personal prayer, our personal Bible reading, our, our personal relationship with the Lord. And it does, of course, include that. But keep reading. That's not what Paul is really talking about in this chapter. Uh, Look at it. He goes on in verse 2 to tell us not to be conformed to the world. That's always a good question to be asking yourself. It's a great test. Are you conformed to the world? Are you more like the world or the word? Do you more love things in the world or things in the word? You should always be checking that, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, which is good, acceptable, and perfect. What does that part mean. I, I, just, I want to preach on Romans. One day we're going to do it. Um, but what this means here at the end of verse 2, it means knowing how to act. It's talking about knowing how to live. It's talking about being able to discern and know the good and right thing to do in any given situation. It's wisdom. It's knowledge in action. It's love in service to others. Because look at where he goes with this in verse 3. He calls them to humility, again, not thinking more highly of yourself. And then he starts to get into it in verse 
Four, he gives us a metaphor, a body, one body with many members and many different functions. Verse five, hey, that's us, the church, one body in Christ. I mean, catch this, catch the commitment there. Catch the covenant language, members one of another. Notice the the possession there. Notice how intimate and, and bonded together. I don't have any question about what is part of my body and what isn't. It's connected to me, right? It's very, very close. Okay, where's he going with all of this? Look at verse six. We all have gifts, different gifts based upon given grace. What do you do with them? Use them, he says. That's what the gifts are for. And this is important. It's simple because there's a lot of crazy confusion on the spiritual gifts right now. I've got the gift of tongues. I can speak a nonsensical babbly prayer language, just me and the Lord. No, that's not a thing. Biblically, tongues were real languages, and that's not what gifts are for. 1 Corinthians 12, 7, God gives everyone a gift for the common good. God gifts, and he gifts that you may gift to others. He gifts that you may bless and benefit and serve others. So no private prayer language. Stop that craziness. Back to Romans 12, verses 7 and 8. Service, teaching, exhortation, giving, leading, acts of mercy. These are just a few of the many different gifts. Brothers and sisters, if you are a Christian, then you are gifted by God. And you are gifted by God for a specific purpose. To leverage that gift, to steward that gift, to seek and serve the common good of your church. And all of that to me sounds pretty priestly. But let's keep going. Look at verse 9. Romans 12 has been my scripture memory these last two weeks, and it's kind of sort of been wrecking me. Uh, Church, this is what you are called to do as a family, as priests. And, And listen to this. Focus for a moment. Really be attentive to what it is that we are called to here. These are all just it's like, it's like a rapid fire of, of imperatives, all commands, all in light of Romans 1 through 11 and what Christ has done, 12, 1, therefore, all this. Let's check ourselves here. I, I've been convicted and concerned about me and about us working through this uh, passage. Verse 9, let love be genuine. That's like the main thing. That's the summary statement. That's why church membership Love. That's why church discipline. Love. Love commits and cares. Okay. But as I've said, the word love has become almost a meaningless term these days. So let's flesh it out. And and this could hurt a little bit. Verse 10. Love one another. Again. Okay, okay. We get it. But I hear this one a lot. Okay, well, we have to love one another. uh, But we don't have to like one another. Love is a verb. Love is an action. So we can love one another and serve one another. But I don't have to like it. I don't really have to like them. Wrong. This is wrong. Love is an action, but it's also an affection. He explains, love one another with a brotherly affection. I've gotten pretty uncomfortable with how comfortable it seems that many Christians, often many Christians even in the same church, united together in church membership, are with how comfortable they are with the idea of not liking one another. Ah, this person just gets on my nerves. They annoy me. Can't stand that person. And so on. Listen. You're not allowed to do that. You're simply not. That is, that's sinful. Uh, Listen, I just think we have this tendency to kind of like, we're all different, there's different personalities and all these things, and so, you know, we can't all be best buddies or whatever. Again, of course, I know that. But, 
These people that we get frustrated with, and I'm talking to myself here, um, these people are blood-bought, washed, redeemed, forgiven, made new brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm, current, I'm more and more convinced you do not get to not like those whom Christ loves. You don't get to be annoyed by those for whom Christ died. You are commanded here to love one another and to like one another, to love with a brotherly affection. Again, I can already hear some of you starting to throw up walls and make excuses and justify yourselves. You should check that. And, and you should, if you're doing that, uh, that's a great warning sign for you right there. Be careful of doing that. He says, love one another with a genuine brotherly affection. And look at the second part of verse 10. Here's how it kind of plays itself out. Outdo one another in showing honor. He's calling us to competition. I miss sports. I'm very competitive. I love competition. Well, here you go, church. Outdo one another in showing honor. In Philippians 2, it's what we are called to do in Hebrews 10 and in Hebrews 10, 24. Count others more significant than yourself. Seek not only your own interests, and we're great at seeking our own interests, but also seek the interests of others. He says, go to great lengths to one-up everyone else by honoring other people more than they honor you. Again, I think we're great at um, dishonoring one another. I think we'd make great competition and great sport with our words and, and tearing one another down, all in the name of jest and fun. But what are we actually doing to outdo one another in honoring one another? I still think it's a great weakness in, in my life. Now, back to Romans 12, verse 11. All of this, do not be slothful in zeal, including your zeal and loving and serving others. Be fervent, serve the Lord. And do you know how you primarily serve the Lord? You do it by serving the people of the Lord. You know, by the way, that's what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 25. Uh, passage is misused a lot as a call for the church to, to serve the poor. And again, you can make that case from Scripture, and I'm open to listening. I know I have weaknesses in that area. I need to listen and learn. But you cannot make that case from Matthew 25. Because it's not about feeding the hungry and serving the poor, but doing so for the church. Jesus says in verse 40, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. I got you to get that principle there. He's talking about his disciples, his people. Again, only Christians are called Christ's brothers, his family. So it's, it's about how we serve God by serving his people. Jesus says, you serve me when you serve my people. Therefore, you worship me, you honor me when you bless and honor my people. And so Romans 12, 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. And I've got to get out of Romans 12. This is not supposed to be an exposition of Romans 12. Let's try to bring this back to Hebrews chapter uh, 10. I'm trying to help us see what it means to do this first verb, to consider others. That's what's being fleshed out for us in great detail in Romans 12. That's what Philippians 2, which we looked at in great detail back in the fall, is all about. This is what it means to love. Uh, so look at that, consider the Greek word is just the word for think, intensified with a prefix on the front, which literally means down. It conveys the idea of to think of something from up to down, all the way through, comprehensively, attentively. I judge how good a movie is in large part by how long after seeing that movie I find myself 
thinking about it and how much I find myself thinking about it. Most movies, you watch, it's mildly entertaining, you move on, you don't really think about it again. But the good ones come back to you. You chew on them. You mull them over. You are impacted by them. What was that saying? Why was that so compelling? They're good, so I give them my attention. What do you give your attention? What are you thoughtful and intentional about? And notice what he doesn't say in the verse uh, 24 there. He doesn't say, consider how to love others and do good works. You should do that. I mean, much of our problem is that we fail to just do that. We're great at considering ourselves. We can stare at ourselves for a long time in the mirror. We can think a lot about ourselves and about our future and what we want to do. Uh, we can give great mental energy to that. But how much attention and mental energy do we give to thinking about others? Some of us aren't very loving and aren't very good at serving others in large part because we're just too selfish and lazy to discipline ourselves to start thinking of ourselves less and others more. So be aware of that tendency in yourself. Do fight and resist that. Do consider how you can love others and how you can do them good. But that's not what he says in verse 24. He says, consider how you can stir up others to love and good works. Now, you need love to do that. The very thing that you are doing is a good work. But the focus is on what you can do to help others to love and do good. It's a great word, that word stir up. If you're looking at the King James, you'll see that it translates it as, as provoke. Now, some of you are already great at provoking one another, but not the kind of provoking we're talking about here. This is a really good word. Uh, it's a word that's made it into English. We don't use it much today. Uh, maybe Tabitha or Ruth, our medical people, still use it. It's the word paroxysm, which is like a sudden violent fit or fever. It's this word in the Greek. It's a very active, aggressive word. So we are being told to very actively and aggressively stir up or provoke or stimulate others to love and good works, to consider attentively how we can do so, to intentionally put our minds to work on ways that spur one another on. We're not just called to love others and seek to do them good. We're called to love others and seek to do them good by mindfully and intentionally working out how we can help them to do the same thing. For others, we're talking about here of trying to figure out and pursue how we can do intentional spiritual good to others. This is just basic Christian life. Jesus tells us in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples. There's whole guys that make careers out of they just go out on the street and they do these things and say, hey, pray this prayer. Boom, you're you're saved. And then they kind of move on. No, that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, making disciples, making followers of Jesus. And so when we talk about discipleship, we we simply mean um, helping people to follow Jesus. Mark Dever has a great little book that you should read called Discipling, How to Help Others Follow Jesus. You should get that book. It's short and cheap. And he defines, I'm borrowing from him, he defines discipling simply as doing intentional spiritual good to other Christians. It's helping each other to follow Jesus, to know Jesus, to obey Jesus, to be like Jesus, and to love Jesus. It's, in the terms of verse 25, encouraging one another. 
I mean, don't miss that this is something that he is writing to the church. He's not just writing to the elders. He's not just talking to Pastor Mike and I. He's calling all of us to do this for one another. This is the job of everyone who claims the name of Christ, to seek to do intentional spiritual good to other Christians. Brothers, this is the, the gospel orients us toward others. Philippians 2, the gospel is Christ, not counting equality a thing to be grasped, but emptying himself, taking on the form of a servant, becoming like us. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. He set everything else aside. He counted others more significant than himself. He put their interests before his own, and he served and saved us at great cost to himself. That's the gospel. It is the outward-focused, other-serving love of God. And then when you are brought into that, when you experience that grace, it makes you outward-focused and other-serving. This is just simply what it means to be a Christian. It means to be turned from in to out, vertically to the Lord. But as we've just seen in Matthew 25, we serve him largely by serving his people. So asking yourself, I'm, I'm, I'm keeping an eye on this every day because I know my tendency still to be turned inward and self-focused. Be asking yourself, are you outward focused and other serving? Are you doing that today? How are you doing that in this instance? Are you angry right now because you're turning in on yourself and starting to demand your own rights and what you want? Or are you trying to turn outward and love your children and love your spouse and to love others even if they're being Difficult. Are you orienting more and more outwardly and towards others? Has your fundamental direction and orientation been changed? Knowing God changes how we live. It changes what we do. It changes how we spend our time, our money, what we think about, our purpose in life. Our purpose is now Him and His glory. And since His purpose is His glory revealed in the saving and sanctifying of His people, our purpose is now His people. And so whereas we formerly gave much time and attention uh, to how we could seek our own good by God's grace, we increasingly begin to give time and attention to how we can seek the good of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And I believe that one of the main ways, the first and foundational steps that we do this is by committing to a local body of believers, by covenanting together through church membership. Every single one of us has a tendency to be seeking uh, first what we can get out of church. Right? How does the music fit your tastes? I, mean, I know some of you sing to hymns and don't sing to choruses. I know some of you sing to choruses and probably don't sing to hymns. We all have our own little silly things that we like. Um, we, maybe the preaching style. Uh, maybe I get too excited up here or something. Or maybe the sermons are, are too long. Uh, how do the various ministries uh, serve you? We're almost always asking, um, how does this fit me? How does this serve me? Um, how was I benefited today? What this text is calling you to do is to begin to think less about what you can get out of church and more about what you can give to church. Some of you, and us, all of us, need to set aside some of our minor hang-ups with this or that thing and start to consider whether or not you have considered at all how you can stir up and encourage others by your presence and by your gifts. Maybe you need to start thinking of church membership less of how it could benefit you 
thing. It will benefit you because it's biblical, um, and biblical things always benefit God's people. But maybe you need to start thinking less of how it can benefit you, and first, more of how you can bless and benefit others by covenanting together and committing to a church. Covenant and commitment is the environment that provides that safety and security that is required for true love to flourish. You gotta have it. I, I mean, I don't, I don't remember the specifics. I told I told Melissa I loved her before we got married. Um, I wish I hadn't done that. Um, I, I would encourage people dating now not to do that um, because for a long time I would oh yeah I love you I love you I love you um, and was putting things off and I almost lost her because I took way too long uh, to get my act together. But what if I just say oh no listen I love you I love you more than anything. Uh, hey let's get married. Ah uh, you know. Eh. I'm all right, but I still love you. I don't need a piece of paper. Right? I don't need to be tied down. Uh, no, I'm demonstrating by that a holding back by my refusal to commit entirely to her that I don't actually love her the way that I'm saying that I'm doing. I loved her when, by God's grace, I stood before God and before 300 people and made my uh, vows to her and took an oath before the Lord and said, I am yours and you are mine for sickness and health, better, worse, life, death, you are mine and I love you. It's that covenant and it's that commitment that then starts to allow and understand and, and make the, the love to flourish and to grow. I did not understand what it meant to love a woman, uh, my wife, before we got married. Uh, ten years in, I'm starting to figure it out a little bit, barely, um, but it was, that, it was the context of the covenant and the security that allowed that love to, to flourish and to grow. Again, you cannot... Love the way that Christ calls you to love if you refuse to commit yourself to a church. Right? You're the guy that says he loves the woman. It's like, eh, you know, it's just a piece of paper. Right? I, don't, I, don't need to, I don't need to commit. No, if you continue to think first and foremost about yourself and what you get out of church, the Christian life is a fundamental reorientation towards God and his people. Are you carefully considering how you can do intentional spiritual good to other Christians? First off, you can't until you commit to some other Christians. So some of you need to start there. And if you already have, well, what intentional practical steps are you taking to seek to do spiritual good to the fellow members of the body of which you are a part? How can we practically stir up one another to love and good works? Start, start with prayer. Listen to how Paul did this, Philippians 1.9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. Notice how often Paul prays about love, that it may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. It starts with praying for others. Um, take that church directory. Uh, join us for prayer on Tuesday. Write down uh, things. Get a book. Get a piece of paper. Get a document uh, on, on Word. Uh, do something to discipline yourself to begin to pray for others. Uh, to pray for yourself. Ask God. I ask God every day to make me more loving and other-oriented because I have a really, really long ways uh, to go. But he is very patient and he is very gracious. And so I pray and I ask uh, him to make me more loving and more like what it is that we're looking at here today and to help me to know in, uh, what I can do intentionally to seek the good of my brothers and sisters in Christ. So start with praying. Uh, second, simply initiate uh, reach out. This is why Mike and I have been so obnoxious in these last two months about pick up the phone, right? get to know 
someone. Um, considering requires intentionality. I reach out, ask somebody some questions, ask them how you can pray for them, and pray for them. Right? It's a very, there are these very simple things that we all have time to do that we could build up the body of Christ Right? if we would just initiate and take some basic practical steps. So pray for others, initiate by reaching out to others, and all that requires third presence. Um, and that was going to be our, our second point. Uh, let me be very brief um, here and summarize. I went on and on after I sent BJ my outline. Um, I almost did another sermon on verse 25, but it's time to move on. Um, for my sake and for your sake, I need to get back into a sequential exponential series in a book. Um, preaching a bunch of random psalms, a bit of Romans, a little Hebrews, that's been challenging. Uh, Genesis 16 next week. Um, So let me summarize this last thing real quick. Um, Verse 25 was the text I intended to preach uh, seven weeks ago. The first Sunday, people started staying home. How do we stir one another up? How do we do intentional spiritual good to one another? Don't catch the first thing that he says. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. Gathering is fundamental to encouraging. Church that is not gathered right now. Do not neglect gathering. Um, I've seen a lot of talk these last two months about uh, church at home. Uh, No, that doesn't make any sense. You cannot do that. I'm not talking about an actual house church, a small covenant body of Christians that gather together for the preaching of the word, the administration of the ordinances, under the leadership of a biblically qualified elder, but they do it in their homes. That's not what I'm talking about. Uh, But you cannot stream out a service like this, awkwardly sing along to some songs and listen to a video sermon and then call it church at home. That's, that's nonsense. What we are doing is not church. Why? Well, it's because of the definition of the word itself. In verse 24, literally it says, not neglecting the gathering. The noun in Greek, it's, it's the word synagogue. It's, it's, it's a gathering. Our text doesn't have the word church in it, but again, in the Greek, the word church means a very specific thing. Our English word church doesn't actually come from the Greek word that meant church. Uh, The Greek word was more narrow and more specific. It's ekklesia, which is literally just the prefix for, um, or the prefix out from, or or to, and the verb to call. It's the called out ones called out of the world and called into the kingdom. And that word, ecclesia, came in Greek to be a very specific technical word that referred to an assembly, a physical, literal gathering of people. Which means that by definition, you cannot have online church. You cannot be part of a church and not gather, because that's what church is. I'd love to go into my views on the situation right now and how the government's handling everything. I'm sure some of those views are correct. I'm sure some of them are not. Uh, So it would just be unhelpful and a distraction from the main thing for me to launch into that right now. But there can be no question that gathering and assembly is fundamental to the very definition and identity of what it means to be a church. That's why this situation is so difficult for us. That's why it's been such a struggle for me. Christians gather with Christians. And if you do not regularly gather with Christians, if that is not fundamental to who you are, if that is not a delight and passion of your life, if you do not love the people of God and long to be regularly with them, then I simply do not understand how you can call yourself a Christian according to the Bible. You can't according to the Bible. 
Again, I got qualify, qualify. I'm not talking about those who are providentially hindered from gathering. That seems to be the situation that we are in right now. So I'm doing my best to be prayerful and patient. But I beg you to see from this verse how critical meeting together is for Christians. Why is that? Why is it so critical? I'll close, I'll close with this. Remember your identity. If you are a Christian, if you have been bought by the precious blood of Christ, washed by the precious blood of Christ, then you have been sanctified, meaning you have been made holy, you have been set apart, you have been made a priest. And what do priests do? Priests mediate and minister the presence of God. Priests serve God by serving God's people. If you are a Christian, then that's what you are. We are a kingdom of priests. Priests mediate presence. So while, yes, God will never leave us nor forsake us. Yes, he is with us always. Yes, we as individuals have the great privilege of the presence of God. You can survive and thrive even in this time of isolation because while we may be cut off from the people of God for a time, nothing can cut us off from God. So be encouraged. But don't forget, we are missing Something. We can live our entire lives with God in his presence. But priests do not exist to serve themselves. They serve others. And so there is something special and unique about the presence of God ministered through uh, to us through the people of God. Especially through the regular corporate gathering of those people to worship God. And in so doing, also to encourage one Another. You encourage one another. You do this thing, he says, by not neglecting to meet together. Priests minister God's presence. You have the privilege and the responsibility of doing that for others. You have the privilege and the responsibility of considering how to do in- intentional spiritual good to other Christians. And I believe that you cannot do that apart from covenant membership and a local church. Covenants love as Christ loved us. Christians love as Christ loved us. And Christ loves us through covenant commitment. Brothers and sisters, I want you this morning to consider your priestly duties. If you are not a member of a local church, uh, this one or any other, uh, carefully consider why. Uh, Consider whether or not you are being obedient to Christ's command here. If you are a member of a local church, this one or any other, then carefully consider how you can love your brothers and sisters, your your fellow members, how you can seek to stir them up to love and good works and do them intentional spiritual good. Let's help one another be like Christ. Let's help one another love Christ. That's what church membership is is all about loving one another as Christ has loved us. So priests, it is a great privilege uh, to minister God's presence to other people. I pray that you would uh, take great time to pray, uh, to consider and initiate how you can do this for others. Um, And then we're going to pray that we can, Lord willing, uh, soon uh, be gathered back together um, so that we can once again worship him corporately as a kingdom of priests. Um, But at this point, let me close us. uh, Let me end this time um, with a word of prayer. If you would bow with me, please.
Uh, Father, we thank you for your word. I pray now that you would direct your people's attention uh, to your word. Father, see what it is that we are called to here. See how good and beautiful these commands are. Father, your commandments are not burdensome, ever. Father, you only command us uh, that which is good for us. Um, You only command us that which blesses us and makes us more like you. So, Father, use your word um, to to protect us from being conformed to the world and to transform our minds, to renew our minds. Uh, Use your word now uh, to do that. Father, I confess that I am still um, so selfishly focused and um, inwardly oriented. Father, I pray that you would continue to turn me outward. I pray that you would do so by showing me how good and gracious, how beautiful and kind uh, Jesus Christ is. I pray that you would fill my heart with a great love for his love for me. I pray that I would minister your word well to your people. Um, I pray that I would encourage your people by pointing them to how good and gracious that you are uh, to us. Um, And I pray that we would um, see not these as as burdensome commands and and silly things that we have to do, uh, but see the privilege that it is to be part of your people and, and the privileged responsibilities that come as being part of your people. I pray that you would help every single one of us in the way that we need to be helped uh, this morning, I pray that you would help us to um, love each other, Lord, and what that is going to look like for each of us will vary. Um, I pray for those that are not members of this church. Uh, I pray that you would um, give them a great desire uh, to unite together with this church in the covenant of church membership. Father, I pray that those who are, I pray that you would help us um, to go to great lengths and effort uh, joyfully to consider how uh, we can seek the good of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, I've been encouraged and thankful um, for how you have sustained us and and grown us even, Father, in this time of isolation, and I ask that you would continue uh, to do that. Uh, While we are separated from one another physically, Father, I pray that we would be even closer to one another spiritually, Lord, as we meet on Zoom and as we uh, call and care for one another. Father, help us all uh, to do that more and more um, because you have loved us so well. Father, do your work now. Through your word we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.